It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 4th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Widespread death and destruction in Ukraine is what we can expect to wake up to for a long time to come. That is, if we do wake up. Europe has to wake up now. Europe's largest nuclear plant is on fire. At this very moment, Russian tanks are shooting at nuclear reactor blocks. These are tanks equipped with the thermal vision devices so they know where they are shooting. They were prepared for this. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, sent this message overnight as Russia overstepped the mark, firing directly and, it seems, intentionally at one of Ukraine's 15 nuclear plants. I'm appealing to all Ukrainians, to all Europeans, to all the people who know the word Chernobyl, to those who know how much misery and victims the nuclear power plant explosion brought. It was a global disaster. Hundreds of thousands of people were dealing with the consequences. Dozens of thousands of people were evacuated. Russia wants to repeat it, and it's already repeating it, but it is six times bigger now. We are warning everybody, not a single state apart from Russia has ever shelled nuclear reactors. It is for the first time in our history, in the history of humankind, that the terrorist state turned to nuclear terrorism. And that is, after all, what the Russians threatened to do. The Russian propaganda was threatening everybody, we remember, to cover the earth with nuclear ashes. Now it is not just a threat, it is our reality. We don't know when the fire on the nuclear power plant will be extinguished. We don't know whether an explosion will happen or not. God forbid that it should. The Ukrainian president is asking you, yes, you, living locally, and right across Europe, for that matter, for your help. Our men were always keeping the nuclear power plant safe, so there were no provocations. Nobody could just go and take over the nuclear power plant, plant explosives there, and then blackmail the entire world with nuclear disaster. The Russian military has to be stopped. Call on your politicians immediately. Ukraine has 15 nuclear reactors. If there is a nuclear explosion, this will be the end of everybody, the end of Europe. Let's speak to the Minister for Justice and Hamid East TD, Helen McEntee, who's on the line. Minister, what do you make of that? Look, I think what we've seen overnight really just um, clarifies and, and I think shows us exactly what um, Vladimir Putin, but also his his uh, Russian Federation and those who support him, what they are capable of. Um, this war started only a week ago and already we have seen uh, hundreds of civilians killed. We have seen towns and cities across Ukraine 
um, bombarded and, and uh, rockets literally reducing towns to rubble. Um, and there are thousands of people who are now left without access to food, electricity, mm. running water, heating. And last night is just uh, a further clarification, I think, of exactly what they are capable of and exactly what they are um, what they are willing to do. And I think for all of us, this is, is certainly, for me personally, this is not something I ever thought that I would see in this day and age mm. um, on European soil. So I think... And it's not just happening there. I think that's the point that President Zelensky was making, Minister, uh, that whilst uh, widespread death and destruction is now commonplace in Ukraine, uh, we could become victims of this war in Ireland and the same applies to people right across Europe because of this nuclear threat now. Well, I don't think we can take anything off the table here. Um, And I think that's what is so worrying for so many people. I honestly have never seen... Um, even people that I know and, and people in Ireland and right across Europe respond in the way that they have. There's a, there's a nervousness. There's a lot of people very upset, particularly because of the scenes that we're witnessing. And, and now more than ever, it's so easy to, to know what's happening because of social media, because of access via our media channels and, and other sources. But this latest development, yes, it is extremely concerning and it does raise questions as to where does this end Um and of course, we've always asked the question, is Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's only objective here, or is he willing to go further? So, mm. I mean, look, this, this is yeah, a very difficult And, and, and when will there be a, a military response from the West of the world? Will that be when he goes further, uh, when he uh, takes control of Ukraine, has his nuclear missiles there and in Belarus and starts looking at Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia? There are two things here. I think, firstly, we have to continue to try, and you'll be aware that talks happened previously, albeit with little results, but there are further talks due to take place, in particular looking at potential humanitarian routes and allowing humanitarian um, support into those who who need it most in Ukraine, but also talks to see if there is a way that we can move forward, that we can move away from the fighting. Um, As people will be aware, Ukraine is, is not, in the EU, it's not a member of NATO yet. So that is why you haven't seen European tanks. That is why you haven't seen European planes uh, or soldiers indeed crossing the border. Um, but we do have to be very mindful of the fact that this could escalate further. We don't want it to. I don't want it to. Nobody here wants that to happen. Um, but we have to make sure that everything is done uh, possible, firstly, to stop this where it has happened and started, and that is in Ukraine to provide as much support as we possibly can to those mm. who are fleeing this war. And that does include, as we've seen in the last week, a significant amount of, uh, I suppose, artillery or significant amount of arms that have been um, given to those who are fighting in Ukraine to try and help them stop this and to obviously push Russian forces back. So the fact that we're even talking about this on European soil, I find it, I find it very difficult and I think most people do. But we have to mm. try and do everything that we possibly can. But the scenario I've just outlined to you, Minister, is exactly what... I'm sorry, Minister, the scenario that I've outlined to you is exactly what President Zelensky has warned will happen. And he has appealed to people overnight uh, to get on to their politicians and give the help that Ukraine is looking for now, uh, which is a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine at a minimum. Well, look, Europe has responded um, quickly, I think, in every instance. And any time an ask has come from Ukraine, from President Zelensky, we have responded. Um, there are meetings. My 
myself, I'm, I'm still in Brussels. Meetings will continue today. My colleague Simon Coveney will travel for an emergency meeting with foreign affairs ministers. Mm. And there are subsequent meetings happening with leaders. So we will respond as quickly and as effectively as we can. Um, and there's constant engagement. So even yesterday, my own colleagues, we engaged with the internal affairs minister in Ukraine who spoke to us directly from a bunker outlining exactly what he needed. And it was that we make sure that we protect the citizens who are fleeing, mm. that we provide them with assistance. And obviously yesterday, we voted and agreed to a new temporary mechanism which would support those who were fleeing. But we've also been asked to try and help them open up green corridors because at the moment Russian troops are not letting humanitarian aid in. They're not letting medicines and food into those who need it the most. So the asks that are coming through, we are responding mm. in the best way that we possibly can. But for the, the very reasons that I've outlined, um, the fact that we need to try and prevent this from spreading any further, um, that has to be done first and foremost. Okay, but in, in lieu of... Every consideration has to be taken into where this may possibly go. In lieu of military assistance, uh, in lieu of the rest of the world uh, taking part in this war, uh, would the Ukrainians not be better off surrendering now before the Russians blow them to kingdom come uh, by hitting one of uh, these nuclear stations or doing what they're doing in Mariupol uh, at the moment, uh, where they're about to starve the people out of the city that they're flattening? Yeah, and I mean, it's these are, these are the choices that people have. And what we have seen from the Ukrainian people, what we have seen from their leaders, their presidents, what we've seen from ordinary citizens who've never picked up a gun, who never intended to, they are fighting for their country. And this is the choice that they are making. While over a million people have crossed the border, many of them women and children, there are still women who have remained behind. Um, there are men who are there fighting, who are, I would consider, only still children. Uh, but we country or were uh, free up to a week ago. So this is this is the unbelievable situation that we find ourselves in. The sovereign state a week ago, where people were going about their daily business, is now under siege. And the decision that they have is either to surrender or to fight. And many people have decided to fight. So we need to support them in the, the decision that they've taken, albeit the most difficult decision I think that anyone would have to take. But we also need to make sure that those who are fleeing as well, that they have refuge, that they have accommodation, that they have shelter, um, and that hopefully they can stay with us on a temporary basis and, and you're, be able to return home. You're talking to us uh, from Brussels at uh, the moment, Minister. Uh, you're there uh, to agree how that's going to be done uh, across Europe. As you say, a million people have already managed to get out of Ukraine, probably another million over the weekend, maybe seven, eight million people altogether will end up as refugees. And it appears that the reception they've been receiving so far uh, has been wonderful for some and not so wonderful for others uh, that uh, the white Ukrainians have been welcomed when they've crossed the border and that's not the situation for others. Well, I, I would dispute that um, on the basis that we've heard from not just our, our colleagues here in, in the member states who, as you say, have been welcoming hundreds of thousands of people over the last week, Poland, Hungary, Romania uh, and Slovakia, um, but we've also heard from other uh, organisations and bodies on the ground um, where, where I think there is perhaps misinformation being spread around who is mm. being welcome and who is not. Every person crossing the border okay. has been offered refuge and, and mm. shelter. Um, and, and I 
you know, I, I, I would obviously not just take the word of, of my colleagues, but many others who are on the ground as okay. well who are uh, reporting that Okay, fact. and I can't argue but with that, Minister, but just to make the point uh, that uh, I was listening to spokesperson for Antonio Guterres, uh, the Secretary General of uh, the United Nations, saying there is a problem, that they're getting it from their sources, verified sources, he said, and he said that the countries uh, where people are experiencing racism and xenophobia are going to carry out investigations into what's happening. But you can take it, uh, I think, from what is happening there, what appears to be happening there, that that, that is going to be an ongoing problem. Well, I, I think what we're experiencing really is the fact that you have over a million people have now moved into four member states in the space of a week. And that amount of people, uh, no matter what you do and no matter how many people offer support and help, um, there are going to be challenges and that number is only going to increase. That's why over the last few hours we've agreed an emergency temporary mechanism. Um, this has never been invoked before the European level. And what it essentially means is that those who are fleeing Ukraine, that they will be able to travel to other member states within the EU and that they will have a right to accommodation or to, to be um, provided with accommodation. They will be able to work. Uh, and I think we've seen even from reports today in our papers, the vast majority of people coming here don't want to come here. They don't want to be refugees. They want to work. They want to get about their lives. So they will be able to bring their children to school. They'll be able to access health care and other forms of shelter. And this is exactly what President Zelensky has asked us to do to help uh, those citizens. So this mechanism will most likely come into play from today. Um, it will apply to those 450 people in Ireland who have already arrived uh, over the last week. But of course, in the coming days and weeks, we'll see many, many more people arrive and I think what's, what's clear and what I've seen, and I'm still getting messages to my phone where people are offering to help, they're offering to, to, to give up a, a, not just a spare room, but their home or other accommodation that they have to people who are coming here. Uh, and what we're trying to do now is to coordinate that offer, but also at a government level, our Secretary General, for the heads of all of our departments, as well as all ministers uh, with the Department of Taoiseach, we've been meeting regularly to try and put in place the best structures and mechanisms to support people and obviously to take those offers of help and, and support also. Okay, uh, and if people do take refugees in, uh, as I'm sure many will and many will want to, uh, what will be the arrangement in terms of the time frame? Because uh, they will have visas or they won't need visas at least for three years, so uh, they can stay here for at least that length of time and perhaps longer and undoubtedly uh, given the amount of people we're expecting into this country, there won't be housing available for them. Well, what this would do, would it would apply for the first year, and as you say, it could be extended up to three years. Uh, and the reason there's a time frame on it, which is separate to, say, the, the, uh, the refugee process or an international protection process, because this is supposed to be temporary. This is on the basis of a, a mass movement of people, but people who want to return home, um, of course, that mightn't be the case for everybody and, and those who have initially come to Ireland are coming to meet family and relatives. Um, but we have to be conscious and mindful of those who are offering help and, and to support that this this may go on for some time, that these uh, people who, that these uh, Ukrainian citizens and others who are arriving may be here for some time. And that's why we need to put some sort of structure on this. And that's what we're working on from a government point of view. Mm. 
Uh, I mean, yes, uh, we, we have a, an issue in housing uh, in that we're potentially talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of people. So we will have to look at every option. We'll have to look at accommodation that's already there, acquiring yeah. other types of accommodation. It could be hotels. It could be uh, temporary type accommodation mm. being, being built or developed. And then also the other offers that are there. Mm. And as I've said, there are many, many offers, not just individuals, but other groups and yeah. and. Uh, companies that maybe have space that could be used. Uh, and pe- people will offer a room, people will offer a house, people have holiday homes. Uh, it was asked in the Dáil uh, yesterday if uh, that will mean that refugees will end up with tenancy rights in houses uh, that have been given to them during the crisis. Uh, these are the kind of concerns uh, that people uh, will want to address, even driving. Uh, people will come here in their thousands, but they won't be able to drive because their driving licence isn't recognised. Again, that came up in the Dáil in the last few days. But uh, if it's 5,000, if it's 20,000, which seems to be the government's uh, figure at this moment, or 55 or 60,000, which was a, a figure that was mentioned to us yesterday by Luke Mink Flanagan, where are the jobs going to be for those people uh, and uh, the housing for that matter, uh, or the healthcare or the transport or the school places uh, when you get down to it all? Because it's a huge influx of people and will put a huge demand on the population of this country. It's a huge influx and and really the numbers that we're hearing at the moment, they're based on a separate migration pact that has been discussed at the European level at the moment, where the suggestion is that Ireland would take in 2% of the overall numbers. And I suppose that is that 2% that's been applied to the 1 million people who have crossed the border and that number could increase. So that's why we're seeing such a potential variation in numbers. But realistically, we don't know how many people will come we know that the vast majority of the 450 who have arrived already are coming because they have family member and friends. If you remember, Ireland is, is the furthest away from where this fight is happening. And so for many people, they will stay on mainland Europe. But we have to be ready for the potential um, you know, influx of people where it may go into the thousands. Um, and that is why government is meeting to look at all of these options. That's why our Minister for Education is involved in these conversations, our Minister for Health, our Minister for Housing, Children, my own department, Foreign Affairs, because there's a huge amount of consular assistance that's involved here, and of course Taoiseach's and, and, and our finance departments as well. So there's a whole-of-government approach being taken here. This is not going to be straightforward, but this is this is not a normal time. This mm. is not a normal uh, event to have happened. This is war, an illegal war that has been waged on people who did not ask for it. Um, and it's absolutely devastating to see, and in particular yesterday, to hear from their interior minister what is happening on the ground. It's, it's absolutely devastating. And I just know that people in Ireland want to play their part and want to help, as difficult as it might be. Uh, and the, the fact that this will put pressure on our own structures and systems, I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. I'm sure the Irish people will respond appropriately. It'll take a war effort, uh, but we're living through... A uh, very dark time where there is war once again on the European continent. Uh, Minister, you're very busy there in Brussels, obviously, uh, trying to coordinate this uh, with your European counterparts. So thank you very much for taking some time out uh, to speak uh, to us uh, this morning. And thank you for joining us on the programme. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee there. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Thanks to David, who has been on to us saying he doesn't agree with war. There should definitely be no war in 2022. We live in a democracy, so why are they banning Russian channels? No one is putting a gun to people's head to, to watch Russia Today or listen to Radio Sputnik. The US and NATO seem to have a carte blanche on what is being done. Why is there no mention of all of the killings that they participated in? Uh, another call to us uh, from Geraldine, who says, uh, there's a hotel in Bettystown which has been empty for years. Uh, they should accommodate some of the refugees uh, there and put the place to good use. People would volunteer to help get it ready. People want to help as much as possible. I think that's true, Geraldine, and I think it's facilities like that that may come back into use because we're going to see so many people coming into the country. There are going to be thousands and thousands of people if this continues the way people are expecting it to. And I think what happened overnight... Uh, although it was threatened, it was very unexpected and very, very scary to wake up this morning uh, to the idea uh, that we nearly uh, lived through another Chernobyl-type experience with an attack on a nuclear plant. Jerry Brady in Clongill says Michael's sanctions won't stop missiles and nuclear attacks. Biden and Johnson and Macron are doing nothing, he says. Thank you very much indeed to everybody who's been in touch, if you have been in touch with us today. Or if not, we'd love to hear from you. Now let's uh, talk uh, about uh, a local issue, uh, an issue that has uh, been raised many times over many years locally, that of the Navin rail line. Patrick Tobin is uh, the leader of AIM2 and uh, TD for Meath West and the chair of Get Meath On Track. Uh, very good morning to you, Patrick Tobin. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning yourself. Uh, and uh, your uh, constituency colleague, Darren O'Rourke of Sinn Féin, raised uh, the Navin Rain line in the Dáil. Yes, I think uh, you're somewhat uh, optimistic, a little bit taken aback, uh, surprised by what Minister Eamon Ryan had to say to you. Yeah, it's, it's, it was positive uh, from what he said. For the first time, Minister Ryan actually said that the Navin to Dublin rail line will be built. Now, I understand many people in the county will be very cynical with regards any promise by any government minister at this stage, given the fact that it has been promised on and off for at least two decades. Um, our job is not to be cynical. I think if we're, if we're cynical around this, it, it lets the government off the hook. It's the same as flying up the, the white flag. We need to be dogged in the pursuit of this. And now that the government minister has said that it will happen, we need to push the minister further to make sure it'll happen in a reasonable time frame. All right. The minister said 20 years. 2042 is when you can expect it. Is that what you'd call a reasonable no, time frame? a reasonable time. That would mean that myself and yourself would be probably happily retired at that stage. And, uh, Michael, if, if that's the case, and that's wrong, and uh, there's no way that we can tolerate uh, another generation of people from Meath, you know, in a commuting hell uh, for another 20, 25 years, it would be absolutely wrong. Meath has the highest number of people commuting in the country. Uh, more people left Meath to go to work outside of the county than actually worked in the county. And that happens in no other local authority area mm. at all. In OK, the yeah, I know you made that point in the Dáil yesterday to the minister and you were saying uh, that if uh, the political will was there to do it, it would be done and it would be done sooner rather than later. Let's hear a little bit of what Eamon Ryan, Eamon Ryan had to say in response to that. There's no short political will for this project. I think I've been on the record in this house and elsewhere saying I believe it does make strategic sense because what you say is true. We have developed a completely unsustainable um, planning, housing, development, transport model 
in the eastern region particularly, but across the country, we have had this donut development where we go out and out and out. And it's still continuing. I think as it's seven, the latest statistics, 70%, 74% of all new houses in the country are being built in the greater Dublin area, including Meath, Kildare, Louth, Wicklow. I think half in those surrounding counties. And there is a real problem that if we don't start switching our commuting patterns away from road-based systems towards rail and public transport systems, the maths just simply won't work. A lot of those commuters coming into the greater Dub into the Dublin city will hit an M50, which is at capacity, where there's no additional capacity can be provided. And it's inevitable gridlock. And what you say about the cost of human uh, cost of, of long commuting times of being struck in traffic, as well as the environmental and, and economic efficient inefficiencies of it. So I'm very supportive. That's why through the process with the NTA, any time asked, I said uh, it seemed to me it made strategic sense. Thank you, the Mr. NTA you has come back argument. and confirmed that. We now have to do the cost estimations. And, and as I said to Deputy Rourke earlier, um, that's what we are doing. We are on track. It will take time. It, there is a queue and planning Thank in this you, country takes inordinate time. But, but there's no lack of commitment to the project. No need to convince Eamon Ryan, it would seem, Peter Tobin. It seems as though you were preaching to the converters. The Navin Ray line, as far as the Minister is concerned, is a no-brainer and he'll deliver it. 2042, uh, it'll uh, be on track. Yeah, so I, I think that, in fairness, it'd be easy for me as an opposition TD to hammer the Minister. Um, I think what we need to do is to see and recognise a real... A real desire by uh, Minister Eamon Ryan to actually have this built, uh, but not to tolerate the timeline that the, the government is considering. But well, he, he just told us all the reasons for it, all these houses in Louth and Mead and, and all of uh, the people who'll be there who'll need uh, a piece of infrastructure like this. Uh, and it will be delivered. I imagine people would be uh, happy to have voted for the Green Party, uh, given that the Green Party are going to deliver this in 20 years' time. I don't think anybody would be happy with a 20-year timeline, uh, to be honest. And I, and I think one of the reasons why there is a 20-year timeline is because the government in general, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and the Greens, are not providing the priority to this project or the necessary funding to make sure that it happens within the next 10 years. Well, and it might happen, though, because uh, the Shinners will be in government in the next 10 years, won't they? And uh, they'll undoubtedly deliver it quicker. Well, if, if, the, if, if Sinn Féin lives up to all of the um, promises that they have made you know, I w- on the rail line, I will absolutely welcome that and support that uh, as well. There's no doubt about it. It's also a red line issue for AIM2 that the rail line is built uh, in time. Mm. Just to let your listeners know where it's at at the moment, there's an assessment report has been written, and that has looked at the potential for the, uh, whatever alignments it needs to travel on. It's looked at the costs and the demand, and it has said that there is a strategic rationale for the project. It's gone into a, a, a draft a Greater Dublin Transport Strategy. And Eamon Ryan, at the end of the year, is changing that from a draft into an actual strategy. But the pressure that we need to bring, and remember that the, the Mead on Track campaign mm. has brought people onto the streets, it has collected petitions, it has put pressure uh, on the government, and we will do that. We're going to ramp that up now over the next six months uh, across the county to make sure that the government you know, do not consider the 20 to 25 year timeline, that they look at a five to 10 year timeline for this project. It's people power that has, has built this. There are two projects. In well, the- I mean, you've got to this stage yesterday where you're delighted at hearing that it will be built in 20 years time. If people want the rail 
uh, to be available to them that they can get on a, a train from Navan to Dublin. Uh, it's a no-brainer. You vote for Sinn Féin, isn't it? <laughs> Listen, I can, I can see that... I mean, one ain't two TD ain't going to do it. Uh, as you well, said, Sinn Féin have be, committed to it. more than one ain't two TD, let me tell you, in the doll on, on the next occasion. There's no doubt about that. And you can see that in the polls at the moment. Listen, Michael, I can hear the cynicism, cynicism in your voice. And I can also understand why many people in Meath would be cynical in this. But what I would say to people in Meath Cynicism lets the government off the hook on this issue. If we say, well, this, you know, is a never-ending timeline, we should just give up, well, then we guarantee that it never gets built. If we get involved in the Meet on Track campaign, and we have a Facebook page uh, and uh, other social media uh, pages there, Mm. people should contact us if they want to help. We need to bring this to the streets in the same way that we've done it on the hospital campaign in Meath. Because there's, about three, there's three elements that actually change government policy. And one of those is actually people on the street. It's people power has, makes an enormous difference with regards to the direction and speed of travel that any government goes mm. in. And I can, I, all I want to say is that we in the Meath on Track campaign will be ramping up the pressure we're putting on the government uh, over the next six months to make sure that this is speeded up and that we have a rail line within five to ten years. Okay, but is is Mead on track friends with Sinn Féin? You fell out with Sinn Féin, obviously, but uh, in recent days uh, you've entered into a game of backstabbing Sinn Féin, haven't you? No, I haven't at all. I've, I've, I've never been involved in a game of backstabbing uh, with Sinn Féin at all. I would, I would honestly say that there are many decent people within Sinn Féin who are good good counsellors. Would that include the people who worked for you, uh, your staff, uh, because uh, you were told who to employ and you were telling uh, the Sunday Independent uh, when they were asking you about uh, Violet Ann Wynne's uh, problems with uh, the party that you had similar problems, that you were told who you had to employ. If, if, if you ask me a question, Michael, you would expect me to answer it honestly, would you not? Um, and I was asked a question by Hugh O'Connell from the uh, Irish Independent. He asked me, did I have a, an opportunity to select the PAs, the, the, the parliamentary assistants that were given to me uh, when I was a, a fresh new TD? And the truth of the matter was that, that I wasn't, uh, that these were provided to me uh, as a fait accompli. Now, as I got longer in the tooth and a bit wiser, over time, um, I started to put that, my foot down and demand that I had an influence over who was working for myself because I believe that the relationship between the parliamentary assistant and the TD is very important. The, 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 the loyalty, the responsibility should be between those two people. Uh, if the loyalty is directly to the party and not to the TD, it means that the TD has less influence and less control over their operations in the office. And uh, I was asked an honest question by Hugh, <clears throat> and I, I give him uh, an honest answer. You wouldn't expect any less. Okay, uh, and that sounds like uh, 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 poor judgment uh, on uh, the people who did work for you, that you would have employed well, somebody I, else for other well, reasons. And, and I want to say the people who did work with me uh, over those years were top class. They were very good. They did their, their work uh, brilliantly. I, I had never any problems with them at all. Um, and I was lucky in that regard. But other TDs were less lucky, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Other TDs uh, did have very fractious relationships with the, the parliamentaries that were provided, uh, parliamentary assistance that were provided to them. And that's why I made that argument. And I, I, I internally, when I was in that party, I wrote a reform document for them, uh, which laid out about 20 different reforms that would help for a smoother, fairer running of the party. I gave it uh, to the leadership of that party openly. Uh, and part of that was that the, the parliamentary assistants would work directly for the TDs, and that's where the, respons- the line of responsibility would be from. Because remember this, 
The TD is responsible first and foremost to the people who vote that TD in. And that's where the first line of responsibility must always be in a democratic process. Because the day where mm. the, the line of responsibility from the TD and the people is severed, it means that the democratic process works uh, okay, less. But I, and, 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 and I suppose the point in relation to the train is that uh, I imagine that the comments in the Sunday Independent went down like a, a lead balloon which in Féin locally. Listen, I'm, it's not my job to uh, wrap local Sinn Féiners around in cotton wool. Um, I'll be friendly. I'll work well with them uh, when we have mutual objectives. But I'll also tell the truth as well. Um, mm. Because in actual fact, it's the truth. And if those reforms are, are implemented in Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin will work better. It'll okay. be healthier but, for Sinn Féin in the long run. But is it right to say that if you want them to work with you on this issue, the Navin Rail Line, or on the hospital issue, or some of these other issues that should be generic uh, to all politicians, regardless of uh, their colours, uh, that they'll have to forgive you, basically, for what you said? <laughs> well, well, what I will say this is just judge uh, me by my actions. So I obviously was involved in the setting up, along with others, of the Save Navin Hospital campaign. And when I was a Sinn Féin TD and when I was an AIM2 TD, I made sure that that organisation was a cross-party, cross-community organisation, that members of Fine Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour, Greens, Sinn Féin uh, and AIM2 were all equally involved in that. And it was one of the few examples, I would say, in the state where a hospital campaign was run where every single political party was treated fairly and openly. And the reason being was because the issue of the hospital was far too important for mm. one political party to seek a day to, to, to nobble the issue just for their own political gain. And actually, if you look at the Meet on Track campaign, there are open meetings, people come along to them from all political backgrounds and none. Because you're right, there are objectives in County Mead that are so important that we have to leave political issues uh, at the door to okay. make sure that we work together. And I'll give you another example. There's... You know, I put a question into the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, in terms of when will the um, Garda station be built in Ratote and in Johnstown. And, and well, I imagine Ratote. she told you to ask the Garda Commissioner a question like that. Well, first of all, Ratote is the biggest town in the country without, without a Garda station. We seem, unfortunately, in Meath to be yeah. always at the bottom of the investment mm. uh, tables. But the Minister for Justice isn't making decisions like that. The um, Minister for Justice is responsible for the fair rollout. Yeah, you know better and, than that. And, nope, just uh, hear me out. <laughs> you know I'm better not, than asking, that. I'm not asking the Minister for Justice to make sure that she uh, determines where particular Gardaí go in particular stations. Now, let me tell you, there's not a Minister for Justice that I can think of that hasn't done that, for a start. Okay, But, but I will say, the Minister for Justice is responsible to make sure that Meath gets its fair share of investment in terms of protecting the public in crime and antisocial behaviour. That's not the case. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, is not doing her job just in terms of fairness. Uh, no, you, you, know, you know that that doesn't come under her remit. You know that better than anybody listening all, to us I this morning. And that I, you're, I you're, you're, you're cutting now. You're have, just letting on and playing to the gallery. Michael, listen, I have met with the Garda Commissioner. Yep. I've met with the They're the people to talk to. I've met with the the, um, the HR uh, manager for this area in terms of the Gardaí in, in the, um, their headquarters in the Phoenix Park. Now, I can tell you that it is the responsibility of a uh, minister to make sure that the investment is sufficient so that infrastructure such as Garda stations can be built in large towns such as Ratoth. And you go to Ratoth and ask them, mm. is it good enough that they're the biggest town in the country without a Garda station? 
you won't get a positive yeah. and, uh, a yes. And it's the Garda anything. Commissioner who they should be speaking to, as you very well know. If the investment, yeah. the investment is not enough in this country to provide for Garda infrastructure. In Navan, they're operating at well, a Well, wouldn't station. it be just a, a, a violation uh, of uh, the... Uh, barrier that should be between politicians and uh, the Gardaí uh, for a minister to say I want the Garda station in my constituency uh, not taking no, no, no. N- not taking into account if one uh, should be prioritised somewhere else uh, I Michael, mean no, 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 you're, you're, you're crossing you're, a line there and you know that let me just reiterate of what I'm saying the minister's responsible for the fair rollout of infrastructure in the in Gardaí right across the country now as I said there is no town in Ireland that's bigger than Matos that's without a Garda station. Mm, well, talk to the Garda Commissioner because that's just we populist, have, have, that's just populist talk playing Meath. to the gallery and no, you no, know it, Patrick Again, M- Michael, Meath has the lowest number of Garda in the country. Talk to the Garda Commissioner. I have spoken to the Garda. Well, that's the person who's making is, these as, decisions as and it would be wrong for a politician regardless of uh, their office to interfere in the day-to-day running of I'm a Garda asking, I'm not asking for the, for the, for the Minister. You are to specifically indicate where Gardaí should go. But I will say that the, the, the Minister is responsible for the fact that there is an uneven distribution of Gardaí in the country, that Mead has the lowest level. And I'll give an example. That has a no, no, but has you're, a you're just effect. trying to prove a point that is wrong, and you know it's wrong. <laughs> you're playing to the gallery. No, you're, no, you're making popular statements, uh, political statements, Michael, when you know that this is something that comes under the remit of the Gardaí Commission. Are you saying to me, Michael, that the Gardaí, the Minister, does not have a responsibility if there is an uneven distribution of Gardaí around the country? I would hope that the Minister would mind her own business. So so if, that, if, if, for example, that's, you know, one county had tripled the number... Well, are you accusing the Garda Commissioner let, let of incompetence? Let, let, are you accusing the Garda Commissioner of incompetence? I, I am a, I am a, I, I'm saying to the Garda Commissioner that the Garda Commissioner is not delivering the Garda in a fair manner around the country to make sure that Mead has enough. And you want because political interference if, if I, in that management? I want equality of... You want political in interference Garda. in the management of Angarda Shiakana. Are you serious? Let me just get a sentence. Seriously, right, are you serious? Mike, let me get a sentence here for a second, right? Oh, you've in, got lots if, of sentences. If, if, hold on a second. If you look at uh, the level of investment that Mead County Council gets, it's the lowest in the country. Oh, right, if we're going to the council the now. I thought we were talking about the guards and Helen McEntee. Just, just let me get five sentences in, in place and then come back and I'll, I'll listen to your, your own arguments. We have the lowest level of investment in mental health in the whole country. We have the lowest level of investment in the Gardaí in the whole country. We have the lowest level of investment in playgrounds in the whole country. We have one of the, the lowest levels of investment in water infrastructure and electricity infrastructure, which means that we... we we, we can't bring in the, the, the okay. large in, industry okay. we need to to have people okay. work here. And as a result, we don't have the, 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 uh, the jobs for people to work locally. Okay. You've the, that's why you, the majority okay, at of least at least at county, if nothing else, County Mead, if nothing else, County Mead has the highest, highest the level of A2 TDs in the country. Because all this is just political talk. And it's the only county that has a TD. What is factually incorrect about any of those sentences? I'm not I'm not challenging them. I'm just saying that... the elected I'm just saying that you're... I'm just saying and pointing out to our listeners that uh, none of uh, those issues were uh, up for discussion uh, and that you've made one political statement after the other uh, as a, a way of playing to the gallery. 
I'm well, way, the listeners will judge me. Exactly. I'm way over time. I'm, I'm I, quite confident in them. I'm sure. I'm sure. Thank you. I'm way over time. I have to leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, Pater Tobin, founder and leader of Aim2 and a TD for Midwest. Uh, thanks uh, to Alan in uh, Drogheda. He says uh, the attack on uh, the nuclear plant uh, shows uh, that Putin and uh, the Russian forces are capable of anything. Does that not send alarm bells out to the powers that be? And Alan says Putin needs to be taken out. We're all doomed if he is allowed to continue. Thanks for your call, Alan. Uh, another call to us uh, then about Ukraine from Mark, who asks if Russia is just going to stop at Ukraine or will they go on out past uh, the borders into the other Baltic states? That's what Mark is worried about. Putin seems possessed and isn't listening to anyone. He says, I know the reasoning behind why other countries are standing back and trying to hurt Russia in other ways, using sanctions and so on, is because of uh, the worry about World War Three, a nuclear war. But it really is terrifying to hear about that nuclear plant being hit, it seems intentionally, by the Russians last night. And there is no doubt fear in Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia in particular about where this war will end. Uh, Noel in touch with us about Ukraine as well. And he asks if we think we should be drafting people into the army now. Thanks. Uh, it sounds like a, a daft question, doesn't it, uh, in this country? But uh, I don't think there's anything daft or things that once seemed daft then seem perfectly sensible as time goes on. Uh, and this is going to run for some time. The challenges are enormous uh, and uh, they're manifold. Uh, let's uh, talk uh, to Plan International Ireland now. Plan International is a development and humanitarian organisation. It works to end child poverty and promote equality for girls across 77 countries. Uh, and uh, the CEO of Plan International Ireland is Paul O'Brien. Good morning to you, Paul. Thanks for morning, joining Michael. us. Uh, those who can get out are predominantly women and girls. Uh, so you've uh, particular expertise uh, in relation to the situations uh, that uh, these people will find themselves in when they get out. Uh, but what about getting out? What, what, what are you hearing about safe routes of passage? Well, at the moment, Michael, we're hearing that yeah, people are allowed to get out of Ukraine and you're seeing quite a number of the borders are still open and there's a, a constant flow of people. Like the numbers that you've, you've kind of referred to is over a million people have already left. And with, I think, what has happened overnight, we probably will see that increase That's if people can leave. So a lot of people are trapped in towns, uh, some cases in the rubble and that. So it, it's going to be a very, very difficult crisis, we think, for the next number of months mm. as refugees flow out. And actually those that are left in, in towns and cities really have to try and uh, work their way through without... Uh, without power, without food, without water, without shelter. Mm. Those left behind, uh, brothers, fathers and grandfathers, it seems. Yeah, it, it's it's heart-wrenching just to see uh, the pictures that are coming through in terms of what's happening along the border, um, what has already happened in terms of families being split up. But we have to kind of really commend the countries within the region and how they have accepted huge numbers of people. Like you don't always see that in some of these crises because we've been dealing with these crises for literally for years. 
uh, going back even into Rwanda and more recently mm. in Syria. When you get very, very large numbers of people crossing borders, generally the host country, they can be open to it for a while, but generally they then, then tighten down because it puts a huge strain on their own sort mm. of population and on their own system. Yeah, but well, thankfully that hasn't been happening today. Well, the, in the majority of cases, I think there's been a, a welcome for people. I, I was uh, just saying to the Minister for Justice earlier this morning how worrying, how disturbing it was to hear the United Nations concern about racism and xenophobia. Uh, it seems white Ukrainians are, are welcome uh, into some of of uh, these border countries, uh, but it's not the case for everybody. That seems to be some of the stuff that we have seen on social media and that as well from those affected. But for the vast majority of people who are coming out, that seems to be like they seem to be welcomed with open arms. And Mm. yes, we know that there's numbers of students from India and Nigeria who are who are trapped there uh, and uh, yeah, their plight is probably even worse than the white Ukrainians. Add that to running, fleeing for your life, trying to get away from uh, the Russian tanks and the might of uh, the Russian army and all its missiles and uh, whatever else might uh, come down uh, the line, uh, leaving family behind uh, and so on. Uh, Many of uh, these children, of course, all of these children, like the children of uh, the world in every country, uh, already dealing with uh, the psychological damage of having lived through COVID, uh, now in a foreign country uh, and their future so uncertain, there's an awful lot for them to contend with. Uh, yes, there there is. And, you know, while the immediate needs of both refugees and the host population in Ukraine will be around food, shelter and water, uh, an organisation like ours is very concerned around children and the impact that this will have on them in terms of what they're seeing and what they're hearing and how they're being separated and the way that they're being separated from, particularly from fathers or from brothers and uncles and that. So there's going to be an ongoing issue there and what we try and look at is what we call psychosocial support and even trying to set up schools as quickly as possible even in some of those host countries to try and get children back into a normalcy if you want to call it. Uh, We see this here even, and I can talk about my own kids, you know, during the during the COVID and the mm. lockdown and not being able to go to school and the impact that that had on them. And, you know, many schools were great in the way that they, they got things going online. But actually it's meeting up with friends and meeting up with their own little group is a kind of that, that sort of normality that they need as well. So it's looking at the specific needs of children. And I suppose we also look at the specific needs of girls in these situations and that too. Mm. And thankfully we're not hearing very many uh, negative reports of anything there. But going back to the Syrian crisis, there was a huge issue in terms of how families almost felt obliged to marry their daughters off rather than have them living in a foreign country or living in a camp in Mm. a foreign country and that as well. So there's lots of kind of knock-on issues here. Some immediate needs around food, shelter, water, but some are kind of the longer-term sort of needs Mm. in terms of psychological needs and what the impact of war does on people. Yeah, and when people move like this so quickly and there's so many uh, and it's not something that's being planned for let alone the infrastructure in place for it there's always going to be uh, problems uh, and undoubtedly uh, concern uh, for child protection reasons uh, and as this goes on Paul uh, we're going to see children get out of Ukraine that will have seen firsthand uh, the brutality of war they'll have experienced terrible things, seen terrible sights, and they'll need help with that, of course, as well. They will, of course. And and like just to think that literally 10 days ago, 
a lot of these children and a lot of the population were just living very normally. And, you know, Ukraine, as we can see, was such a developed country. And not to say that maybe kids in other countries have more of a kind of a a, a different perspective and they may have seen kind of harder things maybe growing up. So I think the sheer shock uh, that this is, you can see literally on the faces of the children that are coming out and that as well, and the longer term impact of this. But the separation and that from family and the worry about family. And even, you know, I heard mm. people talking are being asked, you know, questions, well, about the future. I think people can't just even even think about the future at the moment. It's just, it's so immediate. It's still in such a level of shock for people. And just being able to literally look after the lives of their children and look after the needs of their children is such an immediate thing for any of us in terms of a family. And what we've all sort of been through around COVID, but when you see this in terms of how quickly it came and how really terrifying it came and that's for mm. huge numbers of people and that as well so mm. there is going mm. to be a lot of kind of work that that will be required mm. over the next number of years mm. I would say I think we all point. need to brace ourselves uh, I don't think uh, we really realise what we're all in for let alone uh, those who are uh, at the front line and fleeing for their lives literally you're uh, here today Paul to ask people uh, to help you to help those people to do the work that you do yeah, we, we are, of course, appealing for funds and that. And we have teams on the ground in Poland and Romania and Moldova. And we're we're kind of looking ahead and trying to predict what's going to be happening in Ukraine itself uh, with the destruction and with the place that people are facing, particularly with lack of lack of water, electricity, food, cause, and lack of markets. So all of that sort of is broken down and is being deliberately targeted. So yes, of course, it's a, like what we're looking for is, is money. Uh, we want to try and put money into people's hands in terms of refugees. Initially, I think they, they may be fine in terms of the welcome that they will get, but if we can put cash into people's hands, that gives them, if you want to say the they're empowered to buy what they know themselves and what they need rather than actually appealing for goods which you would then have to transport and transfer and get all of that sort of logistics but actually cash is a huge kind of need in these crises particularly when people have been working and they're no longer working and they may be able to rely on a little bit of savings that they've had that they've been able to take with them, but very quickly that will run out. So cash is the big thing, and our website is www.plan.ie. Okay, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Paul O'Brien is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Plan International Ireland. Now let's hear a, a little bit more about how some of these refugees are being received by some people in some countries when they do get out of Ukraine. What I can tell you is that our colleagues at the agencies uh, working in the area have received credible and verified information from partners and humanitarians present on both sides of the border, um, have documented signs of abuse on several third country nationals arriving uh, in neighboring countries. Um, also documented acts of xenophobia based on people's race, nationality in several border cities. We've also seen the overwhelming testimonies shared in, 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 uh, in traditional media, on social media, uh, from people who have been subject to discrimination, including not limited to, to Africa, uh, as well, people from the Middle East uh, and, and Asia. Um, they've reported having faced discrimination on their journey. I think they're... There are a few things here to note. One is that there has been 
amazing generosity from the border countries, right, uh, of, of Ukraine, who have opened up their borders and allowed for protection. This issue has been raised with the leadership in a number of these countries who've all committed to investigating it and to ensure it doesn't happen. And there's, uh, we are not saying in any way, shape, or form that it is sanctioned by those governments. On the contrary, I think they're all very aware of the problem. We've also seen and welcomed the statements from uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister, who has also uh, condemned these acts and ensured that Ukraine will treat everyone uh, equally. And I saw also in a tweet from the Ukrainian foreign minister that they had set up a special hotline uh, for third country nationals who feel they are left stranded. They're not getting the help that they need. Right. So that's Stefan Dujaric, who's a spokesperson for the United Nations Secretary General. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Paddy Duffy says, towards the end of uh, the Second World War, General George S. Patton said, we, meaning the Western Alliance, should keep going east towards Russia because if we don't fight them now, we'll have to fight them in the future. Prophetic, uh, Paddy says. Uh, somebody else in touch with us, Francis in Navin, who says, Michael, uh, it's the usual blame game with Patrick Tobin. Helen McEntee is doing her job and she's doing it very well. What's wrong with Patrick Tobin? Does he, he want her job? Stop trying to rip her apart, Patrick, and work together for the good of our country. Uh, another text then from somebody who didn't sign their message said that the only person who was playing to the gallery in that interview was me, apparently, uh, according to that listener. Some uh, other comments uh, that uh, we didn't get to yesterday on the programme about young people and uh, how life can be difficult for them uh, being bullied and that sort of thing these days or is it uh, that they're being mollycoddled? Uh, somebody said, listening uh, to that woman, which was Senator Erin McGreehan talking about children, uh, I can see how we have a generation of snowflakes. We had less in the 60s, in the 70s and in the 80s, but we got on with it. You, you weren't mollycoddled and that's why that generation today are a tough generation and they get on with life. That's the attitude. Uh, the schools just don't want to know about bullying and bluff it off, says another caller. Somebody else then says, my daughter was severely bullied and I had to sell my farm and business because of bullying. We were let down by so many people and all of the arms of the state and no one wants to know about the impact of bullying. Uh, listening, uh, sorry, that's uh, that uh, comment again that we got uh, a moment ago, I beg your pardon. Uh, somebody else uh, says, my daughter was severely bullied and I had to um, uh, get help for that. Uh, a lot of people are in touch with us as well about Ukraine, somebody else saying tanks and bombs and guns uh, the Russians use in Ireland, they just uh, put a citizens' assembly in place when they have a problem. Thank you indeed if you have been in touch with us. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's helpless, really, isn't it? What can we do? Or at least it, it seems helpless, and it, it seems as though everybody wants to do something, but there's very little that can be done other than making charitable donations or showing solidarity with uh, the people of Ukraine, and uh, indeed that will happen locally over the weekend, uh, a couple of uh, vigils uh, taking place. One of them in uh, Drogheda. Let's speak to local Labour TD, Jed Nash, who's on the line. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. You've teamed up with uh, the local Ukrainian community and are asking people to show their solidarity over the weekend. Uh, that, that, that's right, Michael, and, and thanks for having uh, giving us the opportunity this morning to provide some details. Um, we, we are all simply uh, appalled and horrified at the 
um, Russian acts of aggression, uh, this illegal war that they are waging in Ukraine. And naturally enough, um, people in our community across Loudoun East Mead want to understand how they can show their support and solidarity uh, to the people of Ukraine in their hour of need, because people do feel very, very powerless. Uh, and we have a significant Ukrainian community uh, in the Drada South Loudoun East Mead area and indeed across the country. And those who are originally born in Ukraine and who have made Ireland their home have made an enormous contribution to our artistic life, to our cultural life, uh, to the life in our professions uh, around uh, Drogheda and elsewhere, uh, our sporting community, our educational community, right across the broad spectrum of our society and our community. And we want to stand shoulder to shoulder with the people of Ukraine tomorrow and the Ukrainian community in Drogheda to say, we are with you. Uh, we are opposed to this vicious illegal war, to the occupation of your land, and we want to we want to help. Uh, people have been incredibly generous over the last few days in terms of donations. We have groups locally like the Drogheda Quilters and uh, the good people in Woolworks and Drogheda making flags. We have um, Drogheda Weavers Group who are uh, also involved, I know, through Instagram from uh, in, in, in making things that they hope to bring to the uh, vigil or demonstration that might be more appropriately described uh, tomorrow. We have uh, 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 Alan Kelly and Al's Tees making t-shirts that people can wear. Just the solidarity has been really exceptional. We want to stand shoulder to shoulder with the people of Ukraine and say we are with you. Okay. Stay with us if you would. Uh, we've uh, Natasha Iaben. I'm not going to try it. Natasha, pronounce your surname for me. Well, I pronounce it as Ibanez. Ibanez, okay. That's uh, yeah. that's a lot easier when you hear it. Natasha Ibanez, good morning and thank you indeed for joining us. You've been living here for 30 years. You've been in Drogheda for about 20 years uh, and uh, you must uh, be very concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. Indeed, Mike. Thanks all for having me on the show. Um, we, have, uh, we have basically, uh, the Ukrainian community has struggled for the last eight months, eight days, because um, nobody believed that this, this could happen. And what's more, what's more worrying is that even though the Ukrainians are now suffering the full blow of this regime, the Putin regime and, it, and his henchmen, um, it also there is a threat hanging over the rest of Europe as well. Like all of this is happening literally 3,000 kilometres away from here. It's practically at our doorsteps, practically down the road. Mm. Um also, this morning we have the terrible news of the Russian forces have taken charge of the um, the, uh, the nuclear plant in Zaporozhye. Well, I think that's probably the good news, Natasha. Uh, the, ter- <laughs> the, the terrible news yeah. would have been if they'd blown it up. Um, indeed, yeah, indeed, yeah, indeed. I mean, forgive me for saying it, but thank God uh, that uh, they have taken control of it uh, because it, it seems as though they were intent on blowing it up otherwise. Absolutely, Mike. That's a really good point. And the fact that fighting were happening in that city over the night is worried worried all of us mm. because it's a bigger it's a it's a plant even bigger than Chernobyl. So uh, you know, and there's 15 nuclear yeah. plants in Ukraine. That's right. That's, that's right. You see, it's a very big country in that, and very uh, mm. there's a lot of industry. So power is a very important part of it. So that's why uh, there's a lot of nuclear plants. And nuclear plants need stability. It needs uh, and that's what, apart from Ukrainians mm. fighting for their lives, are also trying to ascertain stability. Um, yeah, well, there's a big evacuation of Ukraine uh, obviously taking place because of all of this. President uh, Zelensky was saying uh, that if that plant had been hit or if any of these plants are hit, yeah. you'd be talking about evacuating Europe. 
it's frightening beyond belief uh, and something that none of us ever thought that we'd live uh, through. Uh, have you family trying to get out at the moment? Have you family there who are fighting? Well, uh, I have, among my family who are fighting is uh, the son of a cousin of mine in Odessa who has been, has joined forces to defend the coast of Odessa and uh, his mother has said to me that she's very proud of him. The rest of the family that I have in Kiev and in Kharkiv and in Odessa are, are basically taking cover in their basements or staircases of their building if it's a high-rise building because being on the streets is not safe either. See, Kiev and Kharkiv are under constant attack right now. Mm-hmm as we speak. And constant, I mean, you know, they might get a break between sirens of maybe two hours to five, six hours, and this is day and night. Uh, and literally, it, it, it it's evident, uh, I'm no military expert, but it's evident that they're indiscriminate. Uh, basically, you know, they're shooting down, they're blowing up schools, hospitals, whole residential estates, street by street, you know, it's like as mm. if they're trying to wipe out our community. That's what uh, Kharkiv is experiencing. Now, another smaller town, the size of Drahara, has literally been levelled to the ground. That's very close to the border. So not all cities are are being so heavily, mm. but Kiev, for example, uh, two days ago, there was a news which devastated a lot of people where the um, a train that was to take away a lot of refugees was shelled. So not only causing casualties, but also now they have a train that needs repair while under attack, mm. constant attack. So look, at, you've, you've all seen it in the news. It's, it's yeah. very hard. I, I, I take it it's uh, Mariupol that uh, you're talking about, uh, the city that is being levelled, is it? No, there's another mm. called Shasti. It's actually called, um, it's a, it's a ta- if mm. you translate it, it's called, it means uh, happiness. So happiness has been levelled off right. completely. Yeah, it sounds as though Mariupol has pretty much been levelled uh, right. as well. Uh, and well, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it's about to fall. Uh, and it's about to fall, yeah. Maybe you'd listen to uh, the Deputy Mayor there uh, because uh, he's been speaking to the BBC this morning and uh, it gives a really clear picture of, of what life is like for some of our European neighbours uh, this morning. This is uh, the Deputy Mayor, as I say, of Mariupol, Sergei Orlov. Right, yeah. yes. So, beg your pardon, I should be able to bring that, a little bit of that interview to you now. The situation from humanitarian side is terrible because city lives for three days without any supplement, without any electricity, water, sanitary system, heating system. So we have only supplement of natural gas. So there is no supplement external and there is no way humanitarian way, even on the flag by Red Cross or something like this. So from a military part of the situation, it's controlled. The Ukrainian army controls all the borders of the city. So internally, it is totally Ukrainian. But you should understand that we think with our colleagues that today Putin's style of war is like Aleppo. So Mariupol goes to Aleppo. You believe, in other words, that President Putin's forces are trying to create this humanitarian crisis, are trying to force you to surrender? I believe that he wants to destroy Ukrainian as a nation, and Mariupol is on this way. 40 hours of continuous shelling. They shell with bombs, with rockets, with multiple launch rocket systems, with everything he has. And if... 
you're ever able to venture outside. Just describe for us how different does your city look now? How different is it to the city of just a week ago? We don't have any civil objects without some damages. So most of the schools, hospitals, kindergartens, living spaces, they are damaged somehow. If you can open pictures of Aleppo, so it's the picture of Mariupol in two or three days. But do you believe that the reason the Russian forces are not moving into the city is because they feel they don't have to, that they can effectively starve you into submission? I am sure that it is, because on the fields of war, Ukrainian army can defeat and even can beat Russian army. So they know about it and they try to win with humanitarian crisis and to burn the situation internally when the people won't have any possibility to eat or to provide their basic needs, I'm sure. Right. Sergei Orlov, uh, the deputy mayor of Mariupol, uh, speaking to Nick Robinson on BBC Radio 4's Today programme earlier today. That must be very difficult for you to listen to, Natasha. Indeed, and I should have also, in my, um, you know, a minute ago speech, I should have included as well uh, some of the forms of uh, what fighting now happening is sieging and Mariupol. And we have very dear friends of us under siege. And my husband received a call from 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 his friends, um, you know, asking him to look after his family should the worst happen yeah. to him. Forty so, hours of shelling. Non-stop. Yeah, yeah, non-stop. It's non-stop. There might be like, just for so that you understand, there might be maybe, like in the case of Kiev, uh, my cousin says that you could have a break of maybe two hours break or maybe maximum six hours break. But then that is day and night. So you could effectively say, even in the, you know, uh, with Mariupol mm. it's constant, 40 mm. hours of non-stop shelling. But even in the other cities, so you're talking about multi-city attacks. Mm. Do you think there's a case to surrender? You see, it's, that's, that's, that's the trouble. Um, it's, um, majority of people in Ukraine now are not, it's very impossible to get correct, you know, precise, accurate figures about mm, the mm. social, what, the, the public opinion. But just knowing the way Ukrainians are, it's uh, very hard to imagine that majority would be prepared to give up their lives, their existence, their culture, because that's, no, it's, it's, it's very, a lot more damage would have to happen before the Ukrainian people would be prepared to surrender. Mm. I don't know if that I'm makes not sure. I, well, I, yeah. yeah, it does and it doesn't. Um, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but uh, I'm not sure how many are going to survive it. Um, there undoubtedly will be Russian blood as well, uh, and the Ukrainians will put up a, a, a fierce and brave fight. Uh, but uh, without military assistance, uh, I think it's inevitable that this is going to be a Russian occupation. Yeah, you see, Mike, you have to take into account that this war really started uh, in 2014. Yeah. So... Um, the um, it's, uh, I suppose it's maybe perhaps the best thing, the, the, you know, the best way to explain it is if I don't know the English were to come here and take over Ireland. Mm. Yes, they could do that, but surely there there would be a fight, there would be resistance, and even if they do take over, uh, 
the resistance will continue. Yeah. You know, no, I, um, I, I'm not suggesting that Ukraine surrenders, but you know, mm. it, it, it's just very hard to think that we're just watching something that seems inevitable. Uh, and so many lives are going to be lost. Um, can I bring uh, Jed back in, Natasha? Uh, Jed Nash, uh, Labour TD, uh, uh, on the line. And uh, I suppose that's the reality uh, of life for people living locally. And that's uh, why this vigil is planned uh, for tomorrow. Uh, w- w- what's the arrangements for it, Jed? Okay, uh, it would be remiss of me not to um, thank uh, Natasha um, and uh, Helen and, and Olga. Um, for the work that they've put into this uh, over the last uh, few days, uh, especially. Um, and it's been really important for me um, as a local member of the Dáil to understand a little better um, the experience on the ground of the people in Ukraine. I'm grateful for Natasha coming onto the programme this morning and for, for working with me and appraising me of exactly what's happening over the last few days on the ground in Ukraine. Um, and the truth is, Michael, this this could be any country. Um, and I'm, I think it's really important that Nadasha put on record there that this conflict um, started in 2014 uh, and the lessons are there um, from history. Uh, the fear now is that uh, Putin uh, and uh, his regime will not stop uh, at Ukraine. Uh, and um, the reality is that uh, this is an even bigger question uh, than the question of, of Ukraine itself. Uh, this is about the defence of democracy. Remember, yeah, Ukraine's right. democracy. They have decided to elect their own president. They have a parliament uh, where the president and the prime minister are accountable to that parliament. But it begs the question about a military response. Is, I mean, what you're is, saying, where, where you're going with that is that it's going to be a military response because they're going to attack one of uh, the NATO countries. Uh, and uh, for Lato- Lithuania, Latvia, uh, Estonia uh, come under fire, well, then we're talking about a world war. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll have all of this blood shed. Uh, so it's a question of when rather than if, is it not? Um, I, I sincerely hope not. Um, and see, the, the, the point here is, and I go back to the point that Natasha made about 2014, the die was cast in 2014. The, the warnings are there from, from history uh, about what happens uh, in situations uh, like this. And un- unfortunately, and I think the, the, the West, if I can use that broad term, mm. um, I think has to reflect um, on the way in which uh, the uh, invasion occupation of, of Crimea, for example, uh, was handled. The warnings were there. There was a lack of preparation, uh, a lack of understanding and awareness uh, as to what Putin's plan was. And we are not dealing here with a rational uh, actor either. And mm-hmm. that is often uh, the difficulty. But you know, the, the, the world needs to reflect on this yeah. um, and where this goes. At the um, moment, we're helpless. It is Ukraine today, and it could be somewhere else next. Yeah, we're and, helpless. And we all need to reflect. We all need to reflect. We are not neutral in this country mm. when it comes to the invasion of democracies. Okay. We never should be. We never should be. And we need to have a conversation ourselves okay. here about what neutrality and non-alignment means in a modern context. All right, look, I, I, need, I, I need to wrap up, Chad. Uh, just, uh, sure. Uh, yes, tomorrow. Yes, yeah. indeed. Thank you. Uh, and t- tomorrow, uh, we, 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 we welcome everybody, all people of goodwill, uh, to uh, St. Peter's Church at 12 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, I want to thank Canon Eugene Sweeney as well for uh, allowing us to use that space and Garda Street Corner supporting the event as well. We will have N- Natasha speak to the uh, assembled crowd and uh, her friend and mine, Helen Babia, and we will have uh, the presence of our mayor as well, Councillor okay. James Bourne, who will be uh, representing the cross spectrum of 12 o'clock at St. Peter's. Okay. 12 o'clock at St. Okay. Peter's. N- N- Natasha Ibanez, is that right? 
Oh, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Natasha. Thank you very much you indeed for joining us. Uh, Jed Nash, uh, you'll stay with us uh, for uh, a couple of minutes, I hope, uh, because we're going to talk about the Labour leadership uh, as well. But uh, we'll be back to do that after the break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Okay, Jed Nash, Labour TD for Loud and East Mead, uh, is still with us. Uh, and I suppose the first question are you ruling yourself out of the race to become the next leader of the Labour Party? Uh, I, I am, uh, Michael, um, and I have been contacted by a lot of members in our own constituency and individuals across the area and indeed the country um, encouraging me to consider this um, you know I ruled myself out of the leadership contest in 2022 uh, and I'm ruling myself out this time as well uh, and for, for the same reasons I want to focus on being the best Labour Party TD I can for this area I will have and do have a role in the party nationally uh, and I expect that I will continue to have that uh, I plan to support my colleague senator, our former senator indeed, and mm. relatively new deputy, Ivana Badgett, uh, in her bid to be leader of the party. And that process is going to start tomorrow with an executive board decision on that process. And I'll await that decision. Uh, Michael, I'm a member mm. of the executive board uh, and uh, that, that process will uh, commence tomorrow. That being said, I won't rule out uh, in the future, considering this, uh, the opportunity, if it arises, to be to contest an election for the leadership of the party. It's something that I would be interested in. Is it a, a two-year term? The Labour Party seems to have a, a leadership contest every two years. Oh, what a pity. Michael, I think, sorry. I'm sorry, the, the line dropped out and it's there. I didn't hear your response. I was asking you uh, if it's a, a two-year term that the Labour Party seems to have a, a leadership contest every two years. Uh, no, certainly not. But look, we are in a, a difficult and very fluid situation. Uh, and to Alan's credit, um, uh, there was no reticence um, uh, provided to those who approached him with the mandate of the Parliamentary Party on Tuesday uh, to discuss his leadership. Uh, he understood that. That's to his credit. Um, I, I think Alan has admitted in essence himself that he's taken the party as far as he can and the plan that he had has not worked out uh, to uh, our uh, benefit. Uh, and I do want to pay tribute to him. I know Alan a long time. In fact, of all the Parliamentary Party members, we go back the longest. Uh, he was always committed to the party. He will continue to be uh, committed to the party but it is a truism that you know when when the party is not moving off the pole levels it's at and where you know we're not where we need to be and where we want to be that the responsibility for that ultimately that that book rests with the leadership uh, at the top of the party and alan has uh, ha- has now moved on and we, we we wish him well genuinely okay have you heard concern from any of uh, the membership about ivana backage becoming leader given that uh, she's a barrister uh, from a very affluent background and uh, if people are concerned that somebody from the leafy suburbs will appeal to the blue-collar vote? Uh, I, I, I've absolutely no um, questions in my own mind about uh, Ivana's ability to connect uh, with uh, all spectrums of Irish society. But I was asking, and, and I was asking if you had heard any concerns. Particularly our, our work. No, no, and I haven't, and I'll tell you why, because the Labour Party members actually know Ivana best. There's always an effort, I think, made Michael to kind of caricature people uh, and put people in pigeonholes and say, this is what they represent. The work that I've done over the years with Ivana Bajic uh, has been extraordinary around trade union rights, around uh, rates of minimum uh, wage and so on. And actually, she is one of Ireland's actually foremost legislators on workers' rights. The first bill I actually worked mm-hmm. with Ivana with was about trade union rights for voiceover artists and freelance journalists, uh, something you, you in the media business would be very, very familiar with. She has a very strong connection 
uh, and tradition of working with trade unions. She is a trade unionist uh, herself. Uh, and she is Ireland's probably foremost campaigning um, feminist work that she's done, for example, mm. on gender pay, which affects women from across the um, socioeconomic spectrum and especially uh, women uh, who are on Okay, uh, but they, pay. I mean, that, um, that, so that, I don't that, have any concern. The members t- know. T- time, time, time will test that question as to whether somebody who is popular in Dublin Bay South will be uh, of uh, appeal to blue collar workers. Uh, when uh, the Labour Party looks in on itself and uh, you say Alan Kelly didn't take the party out of the doldrums that it's been in, you must be looking back to those Tesco ads and how badly Labour handled itself in, in government. Uh, and if Ivana Backage doesn't do it, uh, is this the beginning of the end of the Labour Party as we know it and uh, the beginning of uh, merging with the Social Democrats? No, I, I do think there needs to be greater cooperation uh, in the centre-left uh, between the Labour Party, uh, which is the foremost uh, centre-left uh, party uh, in the country uh, and the longest uh, established party in the state, a, a party that sees itself as a party of, of government uh, and a responsible uh, political party. And we do have work to do, I think, to, um, cr- you know, for, you know, to collaborate and, and, and partner with organisations that have a similar mind. Remember, Michael, I mean, traditionally the centre-left in this country led by the Labour Party could only ever command uh, 10% and sometimes up to 20% of the election of, of the um, of voter support, um, and that's often only once in a generation. So we're unique in Ireland where, you know, we consistently elect to lead our government's centre-right parties. And I think the Irish political system is in a real real sense of fluidity and a real sense uh, of change. And we need ourselves, I think, to to get back our own collective kind of sense of of, of self-confidence and have more intellectual clarity um, about actually what it is we stand for and what our offering is to Irish people. Part of that is going back to the roots uh, that I always defend, the idea that we represent the interests of working people, investment in public services ahead of anything else, uh, that idea uh, that uh, everybody in this country is equal, regardless of who you are or where you're from or what your background is. And I think we have a future uh, in that regard. And I'm looking forward to supporting Ivana through that process. Uh, we will be having a debate entirely in the party uh, over the next period of time. There's no better person, I think, to lead that debate. And I think uh, that Ivana, when she sets her stall out, can command the uh, support of uh, all members of the Labour Party. Uh, and she did that, in fact, last July, in the context of the by-election, where there were enormous numbers of people coming out from the party, not just from the Labour Party, by the way, but from the trade union movement, people from right across uh, the kind of centre-left spectrum in Ireland to endorse the best okay. candidate to be elected in Dublin Bay South, and we believe that she can uh, really help us uh, to move the Labour Party okay. to where we when, when will that be? When, when will the crowning be? Uh, well, uh, to, I, I, I'm not going to talk about any processes, Michael, okay. until the executive board has met tomorrow. I'm a okay. member of that executive right, board, okay. and the, the Labour Party member is elected at a conference. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay. to make, make to... to, uh, to uh, Bring that Fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it there So for the moment, but thanks. Uh, and uh, just to remind people, uh, if uh, they wish to join with uh, you and uh, Natasha and uh, everybody else uh, for that vigil in Drogheda, that's at 12 o'clock tomorrow, isn't it, at St. Peter's Church? That's right, 12 o'clock okay. at St. Peter's Church. Thank, All you, right. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Labour TD for Loud and East Meath, Gerald Nash. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to an issue that's all too familiar locally that was raised once again in the Dáil this week. Planning a National Day commemoration to commemorate the 9,000 people who died from COVID. Dalgan House, the only nursing home in the country taken over by the HSE. Uh, the families would like to be invited or a representative to such an event. 
On the 25th of January, Taoiseach Indadal, I looked for a commission of inquiry into the 23 deaths that occurred there, and you said that it is a genuine issue, and acknowledged that the Department of Health is finding a way how they would best respect and meet the needs and concerns of the families. Could you give me an update on that, please, as the families have not been communicated with since? First of all, the, in, in terms of the planning for the, the ceremony, um, the families of the bereaved, regardless of setting or whether from COVID-19 or not, um, will be represented at the ceremony along with frontline workers across from all sectors. So it's difficult to specify one particular sector, but there will be um, a representative, um, rep you know, present, um, all those who were bereaved um, will be represented um, in, in a proportional way at, 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 at the ceremony. Um, and. Um, in terms of the, the wider issue, uh, there will be a comprehensive evaluation process put in place in respect of COVID overall. On Taoiseach, Michal Martin responding to Fergus O'Dowd. Mairead Androhada was on the phone to us. Uh, she says watching the number of mothers with children fleeing Ukraine is heartbreaking. And many of uh, those leaving husbands behind, in some cases adult so sons behind as well. And you can see the pain in their faces and the poor innocent children. Many of them haven't a clue. Uh, about what's really happening. Imagine if that was you or me, Michael. Your whole life torn apart. It just does not bear thinking about. It is actually hard to comprehend this uh, and that it is happening today in 2022. I think that's uh, the way we all feel, Mairead. Thank you indeed for joining us. Now to uh, another local issue or an issue that uh, is of concern nationally uh, and indeed internationally because of uh, the cost of living. Uh, but uh, we'll get uh, the picture of how that's impacting on a local company and how it was raised in the doll this week. Your government's retrofitting scheme is geared towards... I beg your pardon. We're going to hear that in a moment. This is uh, Melda Munzer who's been talking to us this week about retrofitting and what impact this might have on renters. Your government's retrofitting scheme is geared towards homeowners, but there's very little thought and even less protection towards renters in the in private rented accommodation. If a landlord decides to, to retrofit his property... Um, he can ask the tenant to move out. You might say, where will the tenant go? But when that work is done and the BEO rating is improved on the property, the landlord is then exempt from the limits in the rent pressure zone and can hike up the rents. Now, although by law the tenant can be, the landlord can invite the tenant to move back into the property, but if he's hiked up the rents, the tenant can no longer remain in that property because the rents have been hiked up. Now, at the minute, there's, there's property websites advertising this loop, loophole as a selling point for properties. Threshold and the Residential Tenancy Board have also said that this could potentially be a big problem with this scheme. So I'm asking you what your government are going to do to afford protections to renters in private rental accommodation under this scheme and the problems it may pose for them. The point I would make is I think the retrofit scheme is a very positive scheme that will provide very significant resources to households generally across the country in terms of insulation and reducing energy costs um, for, 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 for ordinary people um, over time. And it's going to take time to, to, to get to, to critical mass. Secondly, uh, there's been a raft of protections have been introduced legislatively by the minister. And on that issue, uh, I will alert the Minister to that. I know that he's, he's aware of it, and I'll discuss it with him. Michal Martin again, the Taoiseach, uh, responding to Imelda Munster that time about that issue that has uh, been given a lot of time on this programme this week. Now let's go to the cost of living and the problems being faced uh, by a local company. The cost of living Taoiseach, as you know, is raising at an alarming rate. 
These, these raising costs are also affecting every single business in the country, both large and small. I have spoken to many of these businesses about these challenges. A local joinery company explained to me that this time last year, their co-product, which was a sheet uh, material, was costing them around €28 Euros per sheet. Today, they are paying over €7 Euros for the same sheet. To put this in context, they would purchase an average of 50 of these sheets per week, which, which, which over a year has raised to, to raise over 100,000 alone. On top of this, their diesel bill has increased by over 250 euros per week. So far, this business, their coal costs have risen by over 120,000 in the last year alone. I spoke with another business, and they explained how the electricity bill has, has risen from 25,000 per month to 45,000 per month. But these two examples are just the tip of the iceberg. Every business in the country is faced with these challenges. In the border region, and particularly around my own hometown of Dundalk, local businesses are facing even greater challenges. It's becoming clear that the introduction of the minimum alcohol pricing is going to have a devastating effect on the local businesses in towns of Dundalk. Taoiseach, I do support the minimum alcohol pricing, but I've stated all along that when we introduce it, it must be at the same time as the Nord. What we're seeing now is people travelling in their thousands to buy cheap alcohol in the Nord. This is going to be a massive drain on the local economy because, as you know, Taoiseach, uh, when they travel to the north, they'll purchase cheap alcohol, they'll also spend other items like groceries, a cup of coffee or even clothes. The same issue is also happening with heating fuels like coal. Coal is nearly half the price it is up here and people are travelling to the north to buy the coal. The business situation along the border can no longer compete uh, with, with the northern kind of parts and the introduction of carbon tax Taoiseach at this stage is not happening either. Also, uh, utility bills, people in Ireland like to do the budgets as such, and these, these utility bill companies are only billing people twice a year. So people have been putting a standing order of 130 euros uh, per month, whatever it is, and all of a sudden, four or five months down the road, they're getting bills of maybe 1,000, 1,500 or 2,000. this has to stop, and we have to start pushing that utility bill companies will do a minimum of at least six, six uh, uh, metre readings every, uh, every, every month. Uh, teacher, I'm just saying, teacher, because uh, coming from the border area, people are really, really looking for help. And I do appreciate that the 200 euros uh, towards, towards the, the payments uh, towards the electricity bill was, 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 was a major fact. But Taoiseach, it's only a small item. And this is what the Taoiseach had to say to Peter Fitzpatrick. First of all, I want to thank the Deputy for, for, for raising uh, what is a very topical and important issue in respect of, of the cost of living more generally. And I think you used in the earlier part of your contribution its impact on a particular company. Um, in, in, in your county, and I, I acknowledge that. Uh, inflation has risen uh, very significantly around the world in recent months, mainly driven by higher energy prices. And because of the Ukrainian-Russian war, um, the uh, costs are likely to go uh, up even higher. All right, and speaking of uh, the war, Tom texting us saying, why are we just watching this war? Why are we standing back watching this war and not stopping it? If 20 or 30 countries got together, uh, maybe they could take on Russia, he says. Thank you indeed, Tom, for your comment. That's the final word on uh, the programme uh, today. That's our, our programme for this week. And God willing, you'll be able to join us for our next programme on Monday morning with Alan Cantwell. That'll be at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.